Māori writer and scholar Alice Te Punga Somerville has launched her first poetry collection from her new home in Canada. Always italicised, How to Write While Colonised is a very personal account of racism she's experienced and her fears for her baby daughter being brought up in Aotearoa. Always italicised foreign words was advice from a friend and you'll find that in Alice's poems. English is in italics, Māori is not. Alice starts with one of the poems from the collection written about an experience she had at a writer's festival. Room. There are Captain Cooks amongst us too. Bullies throwing their weight around. They think they're the centre of the room, but that's only because they've never been anywhere but there. They have no idea about the edges or even how far the room extends. One day, they'll realise that we in the corners are really in other centres. They'll realise there are no corners, no walls. Is it a room? Is it a room then when there are no walls? I used to want to tell them to move over because they take up all the room. But there's no room. There is no room. No walls. No room. Just links and connections and space. You're not at the centre. There are no centres. You're just standing there, one node in a massive network like the rest of us. Alice, first of all, the academic life, it's been a busy life for you. Where did poetry come in and when? Poetry's always been with me. And of course, as an academic, um, my focus is on Indigenous literatures. And so it's kind of my day job as well as my side hustle a little bit. And so I guess I've been sort of working always on little poems here and there and um, what I've actually found is that it doesn't compete with my academic work and if anything it complements it it's like my brain has two little things going on and like when I'm working really hard on kind of the scholarly critical stuff that's actually when the poetry is also flowing so it's almost like a valve or something that I kind of let let loose with poetry I wondered if it was liberating for you in a way. I mean, you don't have to put in footnotes, you know, and you can say what you really feel um, rather than sometimes having, I guess, to be guarded or to use that academic kind of discipline and language. Yeah, I think so. I think because I work in Indigenous um, and Pacific Literary Studies, we're a bit, we could say, not sort of unconventional, even with our scholarly work over there. And in fact, maybe that's part of it for me has been seeing how many amazing Indigenous and Indigenous Pacific scholars have, you know, have written scholarly work, which feels poetic and sometimes just kind of breaks into a poem and then pops back into a paragraph. And so maybe that's one of the reasons it hasn't felt like a tug of war for me. But I also think one of the things about poetry is that you don't, you don't sort of need to have finished your thought while you're writing a poem do you know what I mean like you don't have to go oh yep I sort of know where this is heading and this is my point about this thing um sometimes I think the best poetry the poetry that I enjoy is stuff which kind of has lots of gaps and room and sort of makes gestures off and off the page there's a quote I found from you from not so long ago saying that you sound worried people always sound worried when I say this no don't be it says English has broken my own heart several times and it's been used for generations to make our community feel small is there an irony here that you're writing 
this collection in English, this language with which you have such a battle? Yes, and um, actually when I wrote that, I was writing specifically about English as a discipline. But part of the point that I made in, in that chapter was that English the discipline and English the language, they both come with the same baggage, which is that even as their English is the language that fits most comfortably in my mouth, actually, you know, every word that I say in English, of course, is not a word in te reo Māori. And so, you know, you can't get away from that. Having said that, there's a lot of really great Indigenous writers who have made arguments about, like, actually, we've made these colonial languages our own. I think what's complicated for the discipline and for the language itself, you know, is making something your own doesn't mean it doesn't still come freighted with all that other baggage, right? I wish dearly that that Māori sat as comfortably in my mouth, and I wish dearly that I could write poetry in Māori. On the other hand, I also know that writing in English means that other people who are also Indigenous have also been colonised by British colonialism specifically. We're able to read each other's work and write to each other and speak to one another um, because of the language we're speaking in. So it's a bit damned if you do and damned if you don't. But you just got to make it work, eh? Well, that reminds me of a point you make, actually, uh, towards the end of the collection when you're writing, saying, look, you know, living the life of an academic brings plenty of privileges and good days, but also isolation and racism. Racism is alive and well. Um, it's something that we come to expect universities anywhere are. It came as part of the colonial project and it came with all of those sort of assumptions and ideas about knowledge and people and who is a human and who isn't and all that stuff. New Zealand universities are also funded by Māori land, right? So a lot of the, if you trace the legislation, a lot of the land that was confiscated from iwi who fought against the Crown in the 1860s, a lot of that land was specifically vested in funding for the establishment of New Zealand universities. So it's not just kind of like vague, oh yes, they're very colonial, but like actually my people from Taranaki, like our land has been vested in creating the university sector in New Zealand. But um, the racism is is massive. The racism is basically the reason that I'm now living in Canada on Musqueam territory here in Vancouver. And it's broken my heart. And yes, it is the decision that I've made to be in academia. It's not always been an easy decision to stay in academia, but each kind of crossroads I've come to where I've been like, actually, has the cost, the personal cost and the family cost been too great? So I moved, I moved here in February this year. It's a one-way ticket. For me as a reader, Alice, I think it's your shortest poem, was one of the most painful and powerful for me. This is Serenity Prayers. Mm. Is this for your baby? Yes, Tetelia is my baby. She was also the person that the um, the collection was dedicated to, our baby, who's now five and um, who just started elementary school, as we say over here in Canada. So she's a big kid now. But this was about, I guess, thinking about, just sounds so cheesy, doesn't it? But the hopes that Indigenous families have for our babies around a desire for them to be protected from the violence of racism. I mean, it's not asking too much, is it? I, I can only hope that this baby <laughs> won't be followed around. Well, it won't be followed around inside of shops to check for stealing. Won't be pulled mm. over for driving too flash a car. Won't be ridiculed for wearing the wrong skin. Four lines. This poem. Mm. Every one of them, a kick in the guts. I feel. I mean, are you feeling more hopeful than when you wrote it for her? 
am I you know I think part of the thing about writing a poem like this which is really an acknowledgement that it's likely that she'll experience these things part of it is about naming it and this is why it's called serenity prayers thinking about the idea of a serenity prayer being pick your battles a little bit and accepting some stuff and and really pushing for the important stuff so partly it's about given the reality that she will grow up in this world what's the possibility I think the hope comes from the point of view of you know what tools can we give her and what things can we do to to change her world I feel so hopeful sometimes in Aotearoa when I'm home but then I also um, I also find that so much happens which is so gut-wrenchingly sad and just like unfair and of course you want to protect your children from that but there's no point living in fairy tale land and pretending like that's not the world we currently live in. We should talk actually about the first poem in the collection because it gives you the title for the book. And again, it's a fascinating story. Um, this woman with a business card <laughs> giving you advice to italicise all the foreign words in your poems. And this is where we should say that English is italicised throughout the collection. Māori mm-hmm. is not, right? Yeah, so this is also a true story. It occurred to a friend of mine. Yeah, so there's a friend who was asked to italicise foreign words. And I was like, what? You know, which one's the foreign language in New Zealand, right? When we're in Aotearoa, why are we italicising Māori or other languages that are indigenous to the Pacific? And of course, one of the things you can do with poetry, which, I mean, this isn't a poem that kind of works being read out in quite the same way, but one of the things you can do with poetry is do something on the page that someone can see. And so this is why I decided to put all of the English in italics and to leave Aotearoa and the other Māori words in the poem in plain type, which is a way to say, um, according to conventions of you know publishing, it's a way to say these are the words that are from this place and anything rendered into italics is, is foreign here. You say Dave Dobbin wrote a song about Madeline Avenue. You guys called it Mad Ave. Now it's called, it's all gentrification, isn't it? It's called Mount yeah, Taylor yeah, Drive. Yeah. And it is, right. it is a story of gentrification, but it's it's a story also of, of childhood and friendship and family. It's many things, this poem. Yeah, it is. And I think, so it is a story of gentrification. Um, I didn't grow up on Mad Ave. I grew up on a street that comes off the next street. But it, the kind of reality of what happens when, you know, the state has an ability to just kind of shut down a community and move people out and all of the the memories and the loss of kind of those experiences and and they were that's how I used to walk home from school you know all that stuff all those people all the the gardens and all all that when I think about Madav I can I can be angry about gentrification and and the loss of memory but um of course Madav wasn't the first name for that place either and in urban contexts um, of course there's always mana whenua who have also who um, perhaps mourning the place that was there before Madav. Because my iwi affiliations are connected to those offshoots of Taranaki who moved down to the Wellington region, I've often thought about, even though I grew up mostly in Auckland, that experience feels like I'm kind of on the other side in the Wellington end, right? Where people will kind of speak to like, oh, so sad to lose this history. It's like, sure, I'm so sad for you that you're you know, 100-year-old building is, you know, not going to stand anymore. But actually, there are other memories that have also been displaced. And how do we think about them? I don't think it has to be a competition, but it would be really nice if a way of reckoning with the loss of memories and place and community 
was able to promote a kind of empathy and maybe even solidarity for those kind of longer, deeper losses in our country. Your poem, Waitangi Day 2019, there is so much in this poem, which is heartbreaking. This with your neighbour, this moment with your neighbour. Yes, this was a true story. So one of the things about racism in New Zealand is that it can be so subtle. Like there is lots of blatant racism and there's also like structural racism, but there's also like the subtle stuff where people kind of make comments and then you think to yourself, oh, I don't think you would have made that comment if you'd been speaking to somebody else or, you know, like it's the looks, it's the glances. Um, It's the way that my husband, who's Fijian and um, darker than me, the way that he gets followed around in shops when I don't in the same way. It's all that kind of subtle stuff. But that subtle stuff is incredibly exhausting. And we we know that it has effects on the body and the the spirit and all. Um, So, yeah, when I wrote Waitangi Day 2019, um, that was a, that was an actual experience. And it was, I think I mentioned in the poem, I had, we had like a small, you know, young baby at the time. So I went in, settled the child and then just got a pen and paper and started writing. So the, the, the poem became my way of sort of thinking through what had happened. Always Italicise How to Write While Colonised by Alice Teponga Somerville is an Auckland University Press publication.